Amen. So we are studying together through the book of Acts. The sermon series is called One. And you might remember that we started by acknowledging that we, we called this series One because the book of Acts is about one God, the one God, who establishes his one church. And he gives that church one mission, which then becomes the one focus of the lives of all Jesus followers across history and across the world. Over the past seven weeks, we've been talking about kind of the first part of that. What does it mean to be the one church of God's people? And here's what we've said. The church is a community of people gathered together who, through repentance and baptism, live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, and devoted to scripture, community, generosity, and prayer. And because of that devotion, the Spirit of God fills our lives so that the details of our stories display the power of God. That's where we've been so far, but we're now at a turning point where we're going to not so much focus on what it means to be the one church— But we're going to move kind of into the second part of our study through Acts, and that is the one mission that God has given to his church to carry out. And we've actually already heard about that mission. You might remember we've talked about it. um, Some of the last words Jesus said before he left earth, he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples. The mission that Jesus has given to his church is to make disciples disciples. How do we do that? We do that by going out into all the world. We do that by baptizing people into Christ. And we do that by teaching all that Christ has taught us. Furthermore, Jesus clarified and maybe even simplified it for us in the beginning of Acts. We heard that him say say to all disciples, you are to be my witnesses. Everything in our lives, everything we do, everything we say, our mission is to point people towards, tell people about, witness to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so we're going to talk today about what does it look like to live our lives committed to the one mission that God has given his church, which means that God has given you. And in order to kind of get into that, I want to talk, maybe it's obvious, um, about Star Wars. See, Star Wars has some of the greatest moments in all of film history, and I'm just going to warn you right now. I'm about to tell a Star Wars story that if you haven't watched Star Wars, giant spoiler alert, but I don't know what you've been doing for the last three decades of your life, go home and watch Star Wars. Heck, pause this sermon. Go watch Star Wars. Come turn the sermon back on, because... The very first Star Wars movie, maybe you know this, it was called A New Hope, and it was released a long time ago. Now, my kids have fallen in love with Star Wars, so I've been watching a lot of Star Wars again recently, and I was reminded of one of the best sequences in all cinemagraphic history, and it shows up at the end of the first Star Wars movie, and it captures what it means to live a life focused on mission. See, you might remember, the rebels who are battling the evil galactic empire, the rebels are scared because they are about to be destroyed, smashed like a bug, wiped out of universal existence. And they're about to be destroyed because 
the Death Star. The super weapon of the evil empire is about to come and blow up their planet. Because in Star Wars, you can blow up planets. That's a thing that they can do. But fear not. See, because the rebels have discovered a weakness in the Death Star. And so they have just launched an insane Mission Impossible attempt to destroy the Death Star. And the scene starts out where all the fighter planes are flying down towards the Death Star, like these little specks flying up to this giant space station. We can tell from the beginning there's no way this mission is going to succeed. I mean, these tiny little fighter planes, that's like an, like an old biplane going up against a modern warship. There's no way it's going to work. And what they need to do is they need to fly down this canyon and they need to shoot two photon torpedoes into one special small spot and it'll blow up the whole thing. Well, the first group of fighter pilots, they go in, but sure enough, every single one of them's destroyed. And we're all like, oh, the mission's never going to work. But a second group of fighter pl planes, they come in and they go down the canyon. Now, a couple of them are destroyed, but one of the pilots gets his two shots off, but misses his target. I'd like to point out that everybody in the room loved my little sound right there, because that's what it sounded like in the movie. So mission one, you know, attempt one failed, attempt two failed. What could possibly happen now? But fear not, because our hero, Luke Skywalker, is leading the charge on attempt number three. And we love Luke Skywalker. And even though he's plagued by self-doubt, we know that he's going to get the mission accomplished. But then, at the last moment, the villain of the story, Darth Vader, flies out and personally tries to stop Luke. And all of our hearts are crushed because we wanted the rebels to win. But it looks like the Empire's going to win. But in a twist of fate... Darth Vader is shot and, and spin, spins out into space. Luke fires his photon torpedoes, hits the target. And right as the Death Star is about to destroy the rebel base, the Death Star itself is destroyed. And we're all just like, oh, I'm so happy because I love it when the good guys win and the bad guys lose. Now, there's a line in the middle of this sequence that is just one of my favorite lines. It was spoken, I had to look it up, it was spoken by Gold Five. That's the only name we get from the character. And in the middle of all these flights, of all these attacks on the Death Star, Gold Five says a number of times over and over, he says, stay on target, stay on target. I want to launch our... Uh, uh, this next part of the sermon series, talking about the mission of the church, by titling this sermon, Stay on Target. As God's people, just like Luke in Star Wars, as God's people, when we're trying to live out our faith, we will often encounter obstacles, obstructions, enemies, villains fighting against us, we will have Darth Vaders of our world coming and trying to stop us from staying on target, focusing on the mission that God has given us. And what we must do as God's people, no matter what's going on around us, is always remind ourselves to stay 
on target. But that's obviously easier to say than it is to do because we live in a world where sometimes the going gets tough. I know, brilliant observation that I just made makes this whole thing more than worth the money you paid for it. Sometimes in life, the going gets tough. I mean, how fun would Star Wars have been if Luke just kind of flew down and shot the Death Star and was like, all right, next. That wouldn't have been fun. And not that difficulty is about fun or not in our lives, but we just know that much of what uh, uh, takes our attention and time and energy in life is the fact that we live in a world where constantly we have to face challenge, obstruction, difficulty that gets between us and the goal we're trying to experience. So I want you to do something for me right now. Take a minute, just pause, just think, and ask yourself, when have you experienced tough going in your life? I mean, for some of you, I'm guessing that right now you're in some pretty tough circumstances. There are some realities in your life, maybe illness, maybe financial or economic realities, maybe relational realities. I bet that for some of us right now in your life, you have got some tough stuff going on. If not you right now, I'm certain that you know somebody, you're close to somebody, you're walking and sharing the journey of life with somebody who's going through some tough stuff. And maybe if not right now, you've definitely been at some point in your life in a season where the going got really tough. Take a minute and just remember that. Call that memory or that present circumstance to mind. And I want to ask you a second question. In that moment, how did you respond? What do you do when the going gets tough? Who do you call? Where do you go? Do you respond by sort of digging in and working hard? Do you respond by kind of stepping back and getting out of it? How do you respond in life? If you're honest with yourself, how do you respond when the going gets tough? I'm actually going to invite you, if you haven't like pulled out, you know, some of you might use the sermon notes, maybe online, uh, or maybe you print it out. If you don't have it right now, would you go ahead, get a piece of paper and a pencil, or maybe just open up uh, a note on your device, maybe open up an email to yourself. Um, I'd encourage you, while we're talking about this, while we study God's Word in just a minute, um, take some notes, write some things down, and actually at the end of this sermon, I'm going to prompt you to write some other specific things down as well. You know, taking the time to simply write things down or type things down increases the engagement and your ability to retain the things that we learn. So when has the going gotten tough and how did you respond? And here's my hope. We're going to read um, a passage of scripture and we're going to hear about the going getting tough for the early church and we're going to learn about their response to that difficulty. And here's my hope. As we learn about their response to that difficulty, I hope and pray that that would become a pattern we embrace in our response to the difficulty in our lives as well. So let's start with a difficulty that the church faced. Here's the backdrop. You may recall, we started the book of Acts by learning about the incredible community of the early church. They loved one another like a family. They shared their possessions generously with one another. They cared every single day for people inside the church and for people outside the church. They loved with the radical love of Jesus. It was an amazing expression of community. 
They experienced some challenge, some conflict internal, but now they've started not to just have to work through internal context or con conflict. They've started to face external opposition as well. And that came to a climax, which we talked about last Sunday, when one of their leaders, a man named Stephen, was publicly executed right in front of many of the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. And that's where our story left off. And we pick up right after Stephen was just executed. And we hear this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I looked up the word for great. It says a great persecution broke out. You know what the Greek word is? Mega. This is mega persecution. You can't make this stuff up, people. I mean, that's just fantastic. Think about the contrast that we just heard, though. The church just went through whiplash from intimate generosity and radical community to the death of a leader and the scattering of their fellowship throughout the Roman Empire. This is a tragedy that they are suffering through right now. And now what we're going to do is we're going to read Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up or open your Bible app and follow along. And we're going to read about the way that one of the Jesus followers, a man named Philip, the way that he responded to the mega persecution that he and his church community experienced in Jerusalem. Here's how the story goes. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are all full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what we have is the church experiences great opposition, great persecution. They're scattered around the Roman Empire. And how does Philip respond? He responds by preaching. And preaching not just in general, but even to a man named Simon, who is a sorcerer, somebody it seems we would call very far from God. And so many Samaritans believe that other uh, apostles actually leave Jerusalem, Peter and John, just to come and see what's going on in Samaria. Now, um, like we often do, I want to take a little time and I want to talk about the context surrounding this passage so that as we look at the church's response to opposition and try to make it our response to opposition, we need to look at the context so that we can rightly understand this story from Scripture and so that we can rightly apply it to our lives. So there's four things I want to focus on. First, I want to note that we just met a man named Saul, and that's a very significant character we just met. Second, I want to talk about the history of relationship between the Jews and Samaritans. This story happens in Samaria, and that is significant. Third, the story says that the church was scattered, and that word scattered is uh, is supposed to cue us in to a very significant historical reality that I want to talk about. And then fourth, I want to lean into what exactly Philip did in response to the persecution of the church. Before we dive into all that, though, I just want to make one observation. See, we do this all the time. If you've been around this church for a while, if you've listened to many of my sermons or the sermons of other preachers that are here, we almost always stop and spend time looking at the context of the stories in Scripture that we read. And here's why. Here's what I believe to be true. Here's what most Christians believe to be true. If I read the text of Scripture and I don't consider the context, the bigger story, the broader picture, the full reality of what's going on, if I read the text without the context, all I have is pretext. What do I mean by pretext? I mean, I've already got some ideas and beliefs in my head, and I'm more than capable of taking my bias that's already there and just finding it no matter what I read. The text, without a context, is just a pretext. And so we make a big deal about spending time learning the context so that we rightly understand and apply God's word. Here's why I'm bringing that up. It strikes me 
that every single week we're practicing this because I think this practice, reading the text, learning the context, to avoid pretext, I think this practice is deeply important outside the walls of the church today as well. You know, as well as I do, that all of us are thinking about our nation, the upcoming presidential elections. You know that all of us are reading news, are listening to speeches, we listen to the debates on Monday. Every single one of those things, news articles, speeches, debates, Twitter, every single one of those things is its own text. And just like with scripture, as we're going into a critical political season, if we read any text, any news article, any speech, if we read it or listen to it without the context, then we will simply bring our pretext. We're not going to have discussion. We're not going to understand one another. And we're certainly not going to make right decisions in our lives. So here's my encouragement. I, I hope, I'm sure you already know this, but here's my encouragement. Just like we do here, do this in your life. Make sure whatever text you learn the context so that you can avoid simple pretext. And with that, I'll get back to the text of scripture for today. And let's start with a pretty heavy moment that the story starts off where we meet somebody named Saul. Here's what I want you to note. We just last Sunday talked about Stephen being stoned. And when we meet Saul, it paints a picture that suggests Saul might have been standing there watching Stephen being publicly executed for his faith. And Acts 8 says, and Saul approved of the people killing Stephen. It says they were stoning Stephen and Saul approved of their killing him. Now, I want this to sink in because we're going to learn a lot more about Saul much later in the book of Acts, but just let it sink in that our first moment meeting him puts a real exclamation point on the severity of persecution that not only was Saul watching the execution of Stephen, but he was watching and nodding with his approval. And that is a heavy picture to paint It reminds us, like Rebecca reminded us last week, that still today there are people whose very lives are put at risk because of their faith. And maybe we don't experience that because of the gifts we've been given as Americans, but many of our brothers and sisters around the world today suffer the very same persecution that Saul was enacting on the church thousands of years ago. So the persecution is great And Saul is one of the leaders of the opposition to the Christian church. The church gets scattered, and we find out that Philip, in his being scattered, goes to Samaria. What's the significance that Philip goes to Samaria? Let me give you a little background of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. You may recall If you don't, just go ahead and read the Old Testament and you'll get the story. It'll be great. But you may recall that God called Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless many people. And sure enough, Abraham's family, direct descendants from Abraham's family, grew into a great nation. 
the descendants of Abraham were called, was called Israel, and Israel became the nation of God's people, often referred to as the Jewish people. Well, as Israel was living their, their story, there came many different times when a foreign nation would come and conquer the Israelites, the Jewish people. And that was a big problem. But each time, eventually, God would restore his people and things would be well again. Well, at one time, when the Assyrian Empire conquered the Jews, something tragic happened. See, because like I mentioned, the Jewish people were very, uh, it was very important to them that they were descendants of Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham married the descendants of Abraham so that they were a genealogically pure nation. Well, some Jewish people living under the Assyrians, they decided to marry some Assyrian people, thus breaking the importance of this uh, descent from Abraham. And so the Jewish people didn't like those who had married the Assyrians, and they called them the Samaritans. The Samaritans were Jewish people who married outside of Israel. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they then decided that as they worshiped Yahweh, the Samaritans, they weren't going to worship Yahweh at the temple in Jerusalem. No, 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 no. We don't care about Jerusalem anymore. They made themselves a new temple on a different mountain. And for the Jewish purist, they had gone too far. So here's the summary. For Jews... They considered Samaritans outsiders and enemies. Outsiders because they had intermarried with different nations and enemies because they worshiped God at a different temple and that was not okay. Maybe a more strong way you could say it with some words that you know, might feel inappropriate but I think captures the way many Jews in ancient Israel felt is that the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds and heretics, and therefore they were outside of God's will. And where is Philip when he gets scattered? He's right in the heart of Samaria. Which brings us to the next point. The church was scattered. Now, I just mentioned that many times God people, the Israelites, were scattered as they were ruled by different empires. They were ruled by the Babylonians, they were ruled by the Persians, they were ruled by the Assyrians, they were ruled by the Romans, and every single time some of God's people got scattered around these foreign empires. And whenever they got scattered, there was always a clear and central desire. God's people always desired to return to Israel in Jerusalem. No matter how far they got scattered, no matter how bad their displacement was, their desire was always to return. Okay, so we've got the context. The persecution is unimaginable. Um, Philip is displaced from his home in Jerusalem, and not only displaced, but he's now in the middle of enemy territory, not only in the middle of enemy territory, but he finds himself talking to a sorcerer. As if a Samaritan wasn't bad enough, it's a Samaritan sorcerer. And he's part of this history of God's people who, whenever they're scattered, especially into these challenging circumstances, 
There's this historic urge to always return. But what do we find Philip doing? I mean, the fact of the matter is, this opposition could become an excuse for Philip. It could cause him to be like, you know what, I'm just going to hunker down and wait till things get better. I'm just going to kind of bide my time and not step on any toes. But we see that Philip's response is that to him, opposition wasn't an obstacle. To Philip, this opposition was an opportunity. Why? Because Philip knew what his mission was. He knew that Jesus said, make disciples. And how do you make disciples? You make disciples by going. And when you go, you teach and preach the word of God, and then you baptize whoever places their faith in Christ. See, Philip's desire wasn't to return. His desire was to go. And so for him, all the suffering and all the challenge and all the obstacles he faced became opportunities to do exactly the thing Jesus had called him to do and his life was committed to doing. So let me ask you a question. When you think about your life and you think about your move, when you think about whatever opposition, whatever struggle, whatever challenges that you might be facing in your life, I mean, certainly we know that churches are wrestling with political issues. How do we, how do we understand, how do we have uh, political division among the body of Christ, yet unity in Christ? Uh, we're going to have Thanksgiving in just, you know, a little over a month. And you might be sitting around Thanksgiving tables with some conflict, with some obstacles. Uh, maybe you have those economic challenges going on in your life, like the early church did. Here's my question to you. Whatever obstacles you're facing in life, where can you change obstacles into opportunities to stay focused on the mission that God has given you in your life? I want to follow that question up by observing one significant thing that Peter says to Simon the sorcerer. You remember Philip preached to Simon. Many Samaritans put their faith in Christ and were baptized. And so Peter and John, two other disciples, they come to Samaria to be part of what's going on. They pray for the Holy Spirit to come there. But then Simon says to Peter, hey, 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 can I actually buy this Holy Spirit thing from you? Because I got some spare change and this sounds pretty sweet. Like, how do I buy into this scheme that you got going on here? And Peter does not like this because... We are not meant to buy from God the free gift of God. We're simply meant to repent and confess and receive it. And so Peter critiques Simon, but he says something to Simon that's really stunning to me and I think is worth all of our considerations as people trying to stay focused on God's mission in the midst of opposition. Peter says to Simon, your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. So let me ask you a question. Again, be honest. You know, I mean, maybe you're by yourself right now. Maybe you got some other family members in your room, but just, if you just think honestly to yourself right now, as you're thinking about how to live your life committed to God's mission, is your heart 
right before God? If you were to honestly evaluate the contents of your heart, would you be able to say, you know what, it's not that I'm perfect, it's not that I've got everything figured out, but would you be able to say that I think my heart is right before God? We started off by saying, we live lives where the going gets tough, where we often face difficulty and obstacles of many times, of many kinds. Sometimes conflict inside the church, sometimes opposition from outside the church. And we ask the question, in the midst of difficult circumstances, how do you respond? And, and we hoped that the way that Philip and the early church responded might become a pattern for us to respond. So here's how I would summarize Philip's response to opposition. Philip would say to you and he'd say to me right now, in the midst of opposition, there's two things you have to do. One, you have to stay on target. And two, you have to check your heart. So let me ask you this. Whatever's going on in your life, whether your heart is filled with concern about our nation and the political circumstances, whether your heart is filled with concern about economic challenges or stress, whether your heart is filled with concern about relational difficulties, because relationships can have all sorts of ups and downs, whether challenges in your marriage or at the workplace or in your extended family, let me ask you this. Can you say with confidence that the target you're aiming for in your life is God's mission above everything else. Can you say for certain that you know the mission that God has given you? Make disciples by going into all nations. And, and are you honestly placing that as a target that comes before any other allegiance or commitment you have? Because if we don't know the mission and if we're not committed to it, when, op when opposition arises, we will never stay on target. And second, is your heart right with God? And I want that question to kind of move us into uh, the final thing we're going to do together. See, because sometimes when you listen to a sermon like this, or you know, maybe you read, read some devotional books, or you spend time in God's Word, if you're like me, sometimes you listen or you read and you find yourself thinking, you know what? I really need to try harder at this whole faith thing. I really need to try harder at staying on target in my life. I really need to try harder. But many of us have learned over the years that faith really isn't about trying harder, but rather it's often about training better. Just like any other endeavor in life, if we want to grow, if we want to move down that path, it's not simply saying, I will try harder. It's practicing training so that we become stronger and we can indeed live our faith more fully. I want us to practice together right now what it means to keep God's one mission for his church the central focus of our lives. And I want to do that by inviting you uh, into a little prayer exercise. This is a prayer exercise that Christ followers for centuries for uh, generations have engaged in various forms. And here's the basic idea. In order to check your heart, you need to spend time actually reflecting on, observing, noticing the contents of your heart. And here's what I know about the contents of your heart. The ups and downs of your desires in your heart are directly connected 
to the conversations and the interactions, the concrete things you do every moment of every day. Your heart doesn't exist in some abstract reality. Your heart exists right in the midst of the details of your life. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. We're going to move into a time of prayer. And I'm going to invite you to look back over the past 24 hours of your life. You could do this over any time period you want, but today we're going to look at the past 24 hours. And I'm going to ask you to observe a couple things about your heart. First, what are three joys you've experienced in these past 24 hours? And these are joys, I mean it in the fullest, biggest sense of the word, where you thought my heart is right in this moment. What are three sorrows that you've experienced? You know, those moments where, whether it's a burden or maybe it's a corruption, your heart was heavy and weighed down. And after you've observed three joys and three sorrows from the past day of your life, I'm going to ask you to consider, does that observation show you any way you need to confess to God? Anything you need to repent of and turn away from back towards God? Or any way that you need to ask for help from God? And with that, would you pray with me now? I'd encourage you to find a comfortable place to sit or stand. Maybe take a couple deep breaths and acknowledge God's presence. And with that, let's pray. God, help us to examine our hearts so that our hearts can be right before you. And first, God, in prayer, help us recall the moments of joy from the past day of our lives. And I'd encourage you to consider even writing those down if you're able right now. Second, having acknowledged the moments of joy, look back over the past day and ask yourself, when did I experience the heaviness or the brokenness of sorrow? Identify three moments of sorrow from the past day of your life. All of those moments are indicators of the contents of our heart. So would you pray with me now, God, as we consider the contents of our heart, is there anything we need to confess to you? Is there anything we need to repent of, turn away from and towards you? And is there anything, God, we need to ask you for help in the midst of. And God, we pray that this practice of faith, examining our hearts, bringing any confession to you and receiving forgiveness from you, I pray that this practice of faith might help us stay on target in our lives. That we might regularly check our hearts 
so that we are not trying to live this life on our own, but rather live it strengthened and empowered by you. Give us strength, God, to make your one mission the central focus of our lives. And Lord, having reflected on the contents of our own hearts and our own lives, we also take a moment and pray more broadly for our nation. Lord, we pray for the upcoming election and the political process. May we conduct ourselves as men and women of faith, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of your calling. Lord, we pray for our president, Donald Trump. As he's in the hospital, we pray for his health, along with the many White House staff and other officials who have either become ill or at least been exposed. And God, we pray your spirit's health upon them. As well as certainly our global village, this world we live in, may your spirit continue to give life and strength to the many around the world who are suffering or ill. And all these things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.